0: That you all just live out the Word of God and you share it with us. It's just such a blessing. And you all look so beautiful, and we can wear sandals again. <laughs> Except you didn't want to see my feet, so I don't have sandals on. My feet aren't spring ready yet, so. <laughs> okay. I found a couple of. Um, jokes from Ted, because I thought we need something that goes along, because this is pretty heavy stuff, that sort of talks about the attitudes we're going to be talking about today. After the christening of his baby brother in church, Jason sobbed all the way home in the back seat of the car. His father had asked him three times what was wrong. Finally, the boy replied, that preacher said he wanted us brought up in a Christian home, and I wanted to stay with you guys. (laughs) okay here's another one a mother was preparing pancakes for her sons kevin five and ryan three the boys began to argue over who would get the first pancake and the mother saw the opportunity for a moral lesson if jesus were sitting here he would say let my brother have the first pancake i can wait So Kevin turned to his younger brother and said, Ryan, you be Jesus. (laughs) Kids are sort of what we're really like. They just don't know how to hide it. So (laughs) this is our fourth week about learning about being a disciple of Christ. And I want to look at some illustrations real quickly before we get a little more into the lesson. This weekend, I was talking to a man in our church who used to work in a printing company, and this TV preacher came on the TV, and he said, You know, i worked in this printing shop, and that guy, we did all the work for their organization, and they would never pay the bill. And they would say, We just don't have the money. And finally, this printing company had to say, We we can't do your work anymore. And so the Christian preacher just moved on with his organization and went to another printing company, maybe trying to find some more free work. A few years ago, I was with a Christian teenager, and she was telling me most of the Christian girls she knew had fake IDs made for the weekends. Then we've all heard about believers who've been caught cheating on their taxes, Christian bosses who mistreat their employees, Christian parents who look the other way so their kids can fit in with the popular kids at school. And then I thought about my good friend who years ago her daughter was in high school and the Cowboys had won the Super Bowl. And there was going to be the parade in Dallas. Remember the infamous parade, I don't know, but it turned into a riot. Most of the kids in the daughter's high school wanted to go to this parade, and this daughter wanted to go to the parade. And strangely enough, a large portion of the student population came down with some rare sort of sickness. And the parents began to call in the school and say, my child won't be there today, they've gotten sick. And when my friend called the school, she said, my daughter won't be there today because she's going to the parade. And the person on the other end of the phone said, you're admitting your daughter is going to the parade? Of course, she's the one that got punished. But the point was, half the school was empty, and all the parents had called up saying, my son or my daughter is sick. What's the difference between my friend who called the school and these believers who behaved poorly in these other examples? My friend sees all of life as spiritual. And so her choices and the actions she takes reflect that. And these other Christians have compartmentalized their lives. I've got my spiritual life. I've got my secular life. I've got my sacred life. And I've got my secular life. And last week we looked at Jesus how he exposed the inner corruptions of the scribes and the Pharisees, comparing their righteousness to his righteousness, and we learned that a wise disciple pursues God from the inside out. When we are living our spiritual life with little compartments, we are not pursuing God from the inside out. When you have your social so- compartment, your kid compartment, a marriage compartment, an entertainment compartment, a financial compartment, and oh yeah, here's my spiritual compartment. When we separate our spiritual life from the rest of our life, we cannot be living as wise disciples of Christ. On your outline, in the kingdom of God, there are no compartments. Paul said, look with me at Acts 17 on your sheet. God is not far from each of us, for in him we live and move and exist. We can't divide our life into compartments, and this is the area God is involved. This is the area God is not involved. This is my kind of conduct in the church and in my spiritual groups this is my kind of conduct in my home and in the workplace god is everywhere he is all through life he is in every activity of life and i thought about joseph he's one of my favorite characters in the bible in the old testament and remember he's faithfully serving the captain of the egyptian guard his name is potiphar Everything in Potiphar's home was under Joseph's care. Everything in Potiphar's field was under Joseph's care. And because Joseph was being blessed by God, Potiphar was being blessed by God. So when Potiphar's wife began to notice that Joseph was a handsome guy, she began to try to seduce him and propositioned him sexually continually Joseph continually declined and avoided her. And I love his words to her when one time she tried to grab him again and he ended up running out the door with his robe missing. He said to her, how could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? In God, he lived and moved and had his being." And his sexual life wasn't in a separate compartment than the rest of his life. And I'm sad to say there's a lot of Christians that that is not true. So in these next illustrations, Jesus gives examples that I think... They're areas where it's easy for us as believers to fall into that temptation of keeping those areas in our life a little apart from God and somehow justifying in our hearts when we choose to do that. And I want to mention this. He isn't saying in these passages, you just lie down and be a doormat. Just get abused by people. It's not his point. What he's saying is, don't be like the rest of the world. You are the salt and the light. Be different than how the world responds to all of these situations. Be like me. Take on my greater righteousness. So let's look at the first one, chapter 5, verse 33. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, Do not break your oath, but keep the oaths you've made to the Lord. But I tell you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. Simply let your yes be yes and your no, no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Now, the Jews considered lying to be one of the greatest sins. They revered the idea of truth in principle. But in practice, once again, they had buried it under a lot of their legalism. Even though time and time again in the Old Testament, God had said, you have to honor your oaths. Look at Numbers 30. If a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to bind himself with a binding obligation, he shall not violate his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. And so by law, oaths were to be made only in God's names. So the scribes had developed sort of an escape clause from a binding oath. We just won't put God's name in it then God's not partnering with us in this transaction. So to break truth really isn't a big deal. They came up with this passage from Leviticus 19. They came up with this idea. You shall not swear falsely by my name so as to profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. So they would say, well, let's swear by your head, by Jerusalem, by heaven, by earth, swear by anything but God. Then God's not a part of it. What a great example of a compartmentalized life. We've got our sacred oaths and we've got our secular oaths. Having a secular oath by swearing on things other than God, let them lie. And not feel guilty about it. And so guess what they did? They all began to make many, many frivolous oaths, insincere vows. No one took each other seriously. And so once again, God's standard of truthfulness was contradicted in the law. And it was lowered to a level that accommodated the selfishness of the people. Because guess what? They wanted to lie. They were hampered by God's standard of truth. And instead of calling out and saying, help me... Help me with this standard of truth. They reduced it so it would just sort of match the carnality that they had in their lives. So Jesus puts his finger on this by saying two things in those verses. First of all, he says, all of our oaths are associated with God. To carelessly call any part of God's creation as a witness to a false oath was to dishonor God himself. God is the creator of everything. To use... Any part of God, his name or creation, knowing you are going to be insincere, that would be sinful. Because everything that pertains to God is sacred. Jesus is also saying it is ridiculous to try to leave God out of the equation. He can't be left out of the equation. He is a partner in every Christian's transaction. If we belong to God, then our words belong to him so we can't tell a lie and somehow think i have left god out of this lie jesus is teaching here why we have oaths in the first place this is the second thing he says oaths are here because of the wickedness of men if men were truthful there would be no need for oaths oaths are to say to someone a, a to make a statement And then to put an oath to it is to say, maybe you'll think I'm sincere if I add this statement to it. Too bad we can't believe men for their words alone. In fact, I was watching the news this week, and someone had just testified in court. And he was on the news, and this is what he said. When you are under oath, you tell the truth. (laughs) his, His point was, when you're not under oath, anything goes. But I was under oath. I had to tell the truth. Oaths were necessary because of evil men and the evil one, Jesus says. And he says, you should not be identified with that. You simply say yes or no, you mean what you say. Someone in the kingdom of God, their speech is trustworthy and true. We shouldn't have to have an external guarantee of truthfulness. We live our lives in a way that people know what comes out of our mouth We will fulfill what we say. Now, I wanted to mention this. Most commentators don't think Jesus is condemning all oaths here. And here's why they think that. First of all, God, in the Old Testament, often bound himself with an oath in the Scriptures um, by himself. And Jesus, later on, would swear an oath to Caiaphas that he was the Son of God. And we also see some of the apostles, look at what Paul says in 2 Corinthians... I call God as witness to my soul that to spare you, I came no more to Corinth. Now, did they do these oaths so they would be truthful? They had to give these oaths so people would believe them because of the evil and the wickedness in man's heart. That's why they did it. What Jesus is condemning is what the rabbis had been promoting, this hypocritical, unnecessary, flippant use of oaths that undermined the very purpose of an oath, which was to be truthful. And so he says, get rid of these oaths that are just covering up lies in your life. A truly good man will never need to take an oath, but the fact that oaths still exist proves that men are not good, just like my friend I saw on the news show. It's not hard to realize how we justify our untrue words today. I just had to think through things in my life, and you can probably think of times in your life. Here's some things that go through our head. I don't want to hurt their feelings. If I tell the truth, it's going to cause a lot of hard situations. I had good intentions. It's just a little white lie. It won't hurt anyone. It makes me look better. It will keep me out of trouble. God says, let me out of the box. Let me get into your world so that what speaks, what you speak, is a reflection of who I am. Look at what Psalm fifty-one-six says. God desires truth in the innermost being. The kingdom of God will be filled with those who speak with integrity, and a wise disciple understands that everything I say is said in the presence of God. When a disciple is wronged, he is gracious. I was listening to the radio a few years ago, and there was a woman who's a Christian entertainer. She was promoting a book. The name of the book was something like Getting Revenge. And I listened for a while, and she was sort of being lighthearted. and She said, oh, this is a great book. We all need help when it comes to knowing the best way to get revenge. And then she starts singing, holy, holy, holy. <laughs> she was a singer. I thought I had misunderstood her she didn't understand what she was saying. She lived with God in separate compartments. The word revenge should not be in a Christian's vocabulary. We're about to see that once again, the Jewish leaders had twisted God's law in such a way that they used the law of God to justify retaliating and taking revenge for themselves. Look at verse 38. You have heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And Jesus says, I tell you, don't resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Okay, Jesus starts with a verse from Exodus 21:24, eye for an eye a tooth for a tooth, meaning that the punishment should match the crime when we've been wronged. Now, here's the problem with that. This law was not designed so that individuals could take personal revenge on someone. It was about a judge. For you to go to a judge and him to assess that the punishment and the penalty would fit what happened to you. So in actuality, this law in Exodus was meant to limit retaliation. It was meant to limit revenge. It was a law of mercy. It was not written to justify going out and taking retaliation in your own hands. It also wasn't literal. Of course, when they say eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth... There was no way you could totally match that. If someone did something to you, like knocked a tooth out, you wouldn't just go to them and say, time to knock out one of your teeth. That's not what he's talking about here. If someone was wronged, there were five things that the law said the wrongdoer was responsible for. The person's injury, their pain, their healing, their loss of time, and for any indignity that was suffered. And how did they help with that? It was financial. It was all about making payment. That way, the rights of the innocent would be protected by the law. When Jesus says, but I tell you, don't resist an evil person, he is saying something amazing. He is saying, the righteous don't necessarily need to claim their rights when they've been treated unfairly instead a disciple of jesus would be recognized by their humility and selfishness and their graciousness even when wronged. this isn't easy it doesn't come natural in the world i don't know about you it doesn't come natural for me it's one of our very first thoughts and if it's not going to happen from our hands we sort of wish maybe it would happen some other way But the members of the kingdom of God should cause utter amazement when the lost world watches how we respond to being treated unfairly. I've told the story before of a 10-year-old boy named Chris Carrier. He was outside one day, and a man drove up in a truck and said, I know your dad. I've been thinking about buying him a Christmas present. You want to come help me? And the little boy thought, Okay. And he got in the truck with this man and the man what chris didn't know about the man was that chris's dad had just fired this man and he was out for revenge and he took this 10 year old boy and he stabbed him and he shot him in the temple and he left him on a dirt road in the everglades for six days and i would not tell you this story because it's so horrific but it has a happy ending so that's what i'm telling you <laughs> He lay there six days before he was found. He miraculously survived, though forever he was blinded in his left eye. That's what revenge looks like. That's what revenge does. Now, Chris grew up, and as a young teenager, he came to Christ, and he would tell his story. And eventually, God called him into full-time ministry. And one day, he gets a phone call from a detective who says, you know what, I was just with a 77-year-old man dying in a nursing home who's confessed to your crime. And Chris thought about it and prayed about it as a young man, and he went to visit him. And at first the man was hard and cruel, and Chris would say to him, you know what you did to me? You meant it for evil, but God has used it for good in my life. And I get to tell people about how Christ ministered to me And met my needs. And he kept going back and back and back. And eventually that man came to believe in Chris's Christ. And Chris would bring his kids and his wife. And they visited this man until the day he died. And the newspaper interviewed Chris after he died. And he said, I can't wait to see him again one day in heaven. What an incredible story. This is what Christ is talking about. When we behave in such a way that the world has to take notice, because even though we are justified in thinking, I have a right here, we lay that right aside. Jesus gives examples in these verses we read. First it was, if you're struck on the cheek, turn the other one. And on your outline, that means we lay aside our right to dignity. For a right-handed man to hit a man on the right cheek, he has to do it with the back of his hand. And according to the rabbi's laws, this was about the greatest insult you could do to a man. In fact, a slave would prefer to have his back whipped than to be slapped by his master. So Jesus is making this point. Even if you are insulted in the most calculated way, you should not retaliate. And we aren't normally slapped in the face as we go through the world, but you and I are insulted in lots of different ways. If we are in God's kingdom, he says, Don't retaliate. Behave like the king who did face insult, who was struck on the face, and he chose to accept it for a greater cause. Look at Isaiah 50. I gave my back to those who strike me, and I gave my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting, for the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I am not disgraced, and I know that I shall not be ashamed. Secondly, Christ says, if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, give him your coat too. And on your outline, that means we lay aside our right to security. That cloak gave them great security. Everybody owned two or three shirts. Those went under the cloak or, was, or like a tunic. But everybody only owned one coat that they wore on the outside. And at night, that coat became their blanket. It was very important in their life. So this example isn't about stealing. This is about someone deciding they want to sue you. And if someone wanted to sue people back then who had no money, what did they have to give them? Their clothes. So when Christ uses this example, he's saying you should even be willing to give away your most valuable thing, that outer coat, even though the Mosaic law could not demand that. God says we go beyond the debt. If someone chooses to treat you unfairly, we do not respond with revenge. We respond graciously. We pay whatever debt it is that we have, and we even go beyond that, like this illustration of the coat. The third one he talks about is whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. On your outline, we lay aside our right to liberty. Roman law gave a Roman the right to force a civilian to carry his pack for a mile. And this was a great relief for the soldier, but a great inconvenience for the Jewish civilian. You could be walking along, doing your day, going to the market, going to sell something. All of a sudden, a spear touches your shoulder, tapping you. You turn around, it's another Roman soldier. I got to carry his stuff for a mile. Remember when Christ's cross, they were walking down the road? That's what they did to Simon. The Romans went to a guy and said, You take his cross. They had legal right to say that. It was offensive to the Jews, not only because it messed up their day, but the Romans were the ones that oppressed them. And then they had to carry and serve the Romans by carrying their weapons and their equipment. Jesus said, even so despised a burden we carry willingly, and not only willingly, but graciously, offering to go an extra mile. Sometimes we're busy in the middle of our lives and somebody taps us on the shoulder. And they want us to do something for them. Or they want us to sacrifice something for them. Or they want us to meet a need that we have. Instead of being angry about it, Christ says we do it and we do it graciously. I mentioned last week that we were able to go with Sally and Lewis to Vermont this summer. And they introduced us to a couple that own a bed and breakfast. And I thought it was such a perfect example of this. We're there. The sun is setting. There's six of us standing on this gravel driveway under these gorgeous, beautiful trees in Vermont. And we're talking and we're talking. I'm noticing this husband that we just met is kind of acting a little nervous and kind of doing this back and forth. And all of a sudden he says, if you guys would excuse me. But he takes off running into the woods. And I'm like, what, what is this guy's problem? And his wife turns to us and says, well, in the woods there is a house of our neighbor and it's 8 o'clock and every night at 8, my husband goes and gets him ready for bed and puts him in bed because he has Parkinson's disease and he can't do it on his own. And I thought, what a great example of someone willing to give up their liberty and doing it graciously. Every night at 8 o'clock. This is how citizens of the kingdom behave. Because where does our freedom lie? Does it lie in having our own free time and getting to do what we want? Our freedom lies in our relationship with Jesus Christ. And nobody can ever take that liberty away from us. So if people are demanding on us we lay down our life graciously, it's not going to take away our real freedom. It's just going to change some circumstances for the day, and we get to represent Christ. Fourthly, he says, give to him who asks of you. Don't turn away someone who wants to borrow on your outline. We lay aside our right to property. People are possessive. We don't want to give up what rightly belongs to us. We easily forget nothing belongs to us. We are just stewards of everything that God gives us. But what Christ is talking about here is when someone has a genuine need, we give to them generously, graciously, enough so that we don't only help them out of their poverty or a hard condition, We go beyond that to try to also remove the humiliation that is connected to people that have needs like that. Lots of people don't want to ask for those things. We can give in a way that also takes away that humiliation they may be feeling. When we do that, we understand, I'm really giving to God We have that perspective. The kingdom of God will be filled with people that have been generous when it comes to meeting other people's needs. Now, letting God out of the box here, I don't know if there's any area of our life we guard more than our rights. We feel justified. We think life has to be fair. In a Christian's world, there is no such thing. We think if we've been wronged, it has to be correct. If we've been insulted, they should pay back. If our time, our money, our freedoms are threatened, we can refuse to help. We deserve that. I had a friend who was in a supermarket parking lot, and a little old man hit him in his car and made a dent in his car. The little old man didn't have any insurance. He didn't have any money. And our friend was a new Christian, and he came to Ted and I, and he was puzzled because he said, All my Christian friends are telling me to sue him. And we were so saddened by that because they had God in a box. This was my right to demand payment from this individual. How do we let God out of that box and let him come into that world? We recognize that the gospel is a cause that is greater than our rights. Every time we guard our rights... With our selfish attitude, we are hurting the rights of others to witness the very character of Christ, who did not seek revenge when he was insulted, who did not refuse the robe off his back but went to the cross naked, who did not only walk one mile, but in the three years he walked on the earth hundreds upon hundreds of miles so he could carry the burden of our sin who gave generously all that he had to give his very life that we might be rich, meaning he gave up his dignity, he gave up his security, he gave up his liberty, he gave up his property for us. And he could do it because he knew God was in control. A wise disciple understands, I am entrusting this situation that is unjust to my just God. We loosen our grip on our so-called rights, and we tighten our grip on the purposes of God. 1 Peter 2 tells us this. This finds favor if for the sake of conscience towards God a man bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God, for you've been called for this purpose. Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. When a disciple is hated, he loves. Let's look at that, verse 43. You've heard it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Don't even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus, again, contrasts the Pharisees' sense of love with his true sense of love. And they had twisted the law to say, you only have to love the people you get along with. That's how they defined a neighbor, the people you like. And then you get to hate the people that are your enemies. They sort of added that. Jesus says, that's never right. I'm going to tell you, love your enemies. What? They thought not only did they have the right to hate their enemies, they thought it was their duty to hate their enemies. I read one of the rabbi traditions, and it actually said, if you see a Gentile fall into the sea, make sure you do not lift him out. He's an enemy. You hate him. You let him drown. Like we tend to do, they had an enemy compartment that they tried to leave God out of so they could justify their bitterness and their hatred and their anger without letting God get in the way. God's love is so great, he says, even embrace your enemies. Because guess what? When our sin made us his enemies, He was never our enemy. In the same way, a wise disciple is never an enemy of those who may be an enemy to them. I read about a Scottish reformer, George Wizard. He was sentenced to die, a heretic. But when the executioner came to George, he knew that he had worked endless hours helping people with the plague. And so when George looked at the executioner in the face, he could see that he was really wrestling with taking his life. And so George leaned forward, kissed the executioner on the cheek, and said, Sir, may that be a token that I forgive you. This is what we're to do with people who claim to be our enemies. We don't let them become our enemies. Jesus says we pray to respond to those kind of people. When we pray, all of a sudden God makes us realize it's not about what they did. It's about who they are and that they need to understand who Christ is. And when we love that way, we will be like children of God. 1 John 4 says we've come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. And Jesus says, hey, God's love is impartial. He reigns on the righteous and the the evil. He sends sunshine on the evil and the good. This is the kind of love I want you to show. Loving people without respect to merit. Or what they deserve. Otherwise, you're no different than anyone else. In fact, he uses illustrations here. Who are the two people the Jews hated the most? Gentiles, which in this verse are called pagans, and tax collectors. And so he says, you're just like them. The very people you choose to hate, that makes you just like them. We all know to let God out of this box, we've all had enemy compartments before. We somehow justify them because we've been treated unfairly. But it doesn't feel good to hang on to that compartment. And it won't feel good because it violates who we are in Christ. We are undeserving yet we are loved. We are sinners, yet we are loved. We disobey God, yet we are loved. And a wise disciple demonstrates a divine love since we are loved divinely. So we have to get rid of our enemy compartment if we want to experience the true love of God in our life. And here's how we do that. We go to God. We have our enemy compartment filled with people who have hurt us, and we say, here's the compartment that's filled with people. I've been keeping it because I've been holding on to the evidence. And I am willing to hand that to you. But to love them, I'm going to need your help. Every time we hand another compartment over to God, God will be changing us we will be taking on the righteousness of Christ. Our words will be truthful. When we're wronged, we'll be gracious. And when we love even our enemies, it will be supernatural. Let me pray. We love you, Lord. We love you for who you are, for what you did for us, and your humility and we know what it means to us in our lives. May you change us. May we look like you. May we reflect you so that we might bless others. We give you all praise today for all things. In Christ's holy name, amen.